2: The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com/slateabc.
0: Welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm David Hagland, the editor of Browbeat, Slate's culture blog, and I'm here with Emily Bazelon, a senior editor at Slate. Hello Emily. Hey David. We're also joined by Megan O'Rourke, a critic for Slate and currently the Mary Rout Chair of Writing at Scripps. Hello, Megan. Hi, David. Today, we are going to be talking about Swan's Way, the first volume of Marcel Proust's magisterial seven-volume novel, In Search of Lost Time. Swan's Way was published 100 years ago in 1913, hence this discussion, and It comes so freighted with expectations and with its reputation preceding it so heavily that I thought we could begin this discussion a little differently than we usually begin our audiobook clubs by talking about what we expected from this book. Let me first describe it briefly. It's in three parts. It begins with a section called Cambrai, which is a place where the narrator would spend his childhood, and so these are childhood memories. Then almost half the book is given over to the romance of Swan, a family friend of the narrator's, and Odette. And then the third section returns to the narrator's childhood. He's now slightly older, maybe an adolescent or something. It's a very strange book, I think, but I'm curious to hear what you guys expected from it. Emily, what did you think you would find when you opened Swan's Way?
1: I expected revelation, and I also expected that it would be impossible to read. I have been getting these great messages for months from book groups on Goodreads in particular in honor of the 100th anniversary from people who are just so deep into Proust in this way that for me as someone who was not an English major in college, has no advanced degree in literature to offer at all, has been really instructive and illustrative, and people— feel so strongly about him. He seems to me like a very individual, almost sui generis figure in the history of, you know, English letters, certainly. He has this real kind of cult status and the more I understood about his life, the more that made sense
2: to me. But anyway, all of that preceded my entry into the book.
0: What about you, Megan?
2: You know, it's a little hard for me to remember because the first time I started this book was years ago. I've started the book several times and then ended up uh, reading it in full about five years ago, I guess, maybe six. I expected much of what Emily expected. I expected a kind of impressionistic, philosophical look at the currents of everyday life, you know, underpinned by a kind of, you know, profound exploration of society and and mores, which it really is what we get. I mean, especially if you read further into the uh, seven-volume series. I mean, I, I felt like my expectations were uh, met by the book, in other words. It didn't seem different to me from what I had expected it to be. It superseded them, if anything, right? Do you
0: agree with Emily that, it's, that this book is not really like any others?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that Remembrance of Things Past, it is sui generis, It's interesting. I was rereading, um, there's a little book by Edmund White, A Life of Marcel Proust, which I like, and he begins the book by saying that in England not long ago, a survey of, of writers and critics said that the 20th century novelist they most admired was Marcel Proust. And Emily used the phrase English letters. And of course, he is <laughs> you know, wrong, a huge figure in fact. English letters, but he's of course of French letters too. And this book is very French in a lot of ways that maybe we'll talk about too. But even though this is a kind of apogee of French literature, it is also, I think, an apogee of English literature. And it, it really predates our preoccupations with reality, you know, kind of the ways in which contemporary novels break beyond the barrier of the fictive to bring in the quote-unquote real, the ways we pride ourselves on being kind of postmodern and using hybrids. I mean, all those things are things that this novel as a collection does, and even that Swan's Way on its own as a volume does.
0: I read the book when I was in college and loved it at the time and actually went went ahead and read the rest of the volumes, which I... Remember more and more faintly as they go. I can barely remember after the first couple, apart from a few stray details. But I remembered loving it. And it was funny to read it again, 15 or so years later, and find it very strange. I mean, not only because it is philosophical and impressionistic, as you guys mentioned, and as you were expecting. But it also is full of almost Dickensian descriptions of characters and comedy. I mean, it's, it's almost as though he threw everything in. So it opens with this long description of trying to sleep and then slowly waking up. and then Which is
1: a marvel in itself, right? Which so captures that very ordinary and yet incredibly important act that we all constantly go through. Sorry to interrupt
0: you. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And then it also invokes these philosophical questions of reality and consciousness. And because he's sort of halfway in between, he's seeing these things that aren't real, but they feel real to him. So he's also setting up these very big sort of questions that then he's going to engage with throughout the novel. The other thing that struck me reading at this time was how, how weird some of his ideas seem to me. Um, like what? I'm not exactly sure what he was trying to say about reality, but it seemed like there's this recurring theme that what you feel is not really tied to the outside world. This is maybe most explicit in the section about Swan and Odette, which is about half the book. And so Swan is this uh, esthete. He's, I believe, an art collector and moves in society, knows, you know, all of the best people, that has begun to go to this semi-humble salon where he meets Odette. And she's a a courtesan, courtesan, right? And it's sort of a little bit of a joke, I think. I'm curious to hear what you guys think. A little bit of a joke that he is interested in her. her And
1: the salon people are these sort of pretentious yet lowbrow folk, right? Or middlebrow, actually, I should say, really.
0: Yeah, he doesn't take all that seriously. Like, he finds them a little ridiculous, but he becomes so attracted to her that he keeps going.
1: Even though he also finds her kind of repugnant at the same time, right? He's fascinated by her and compelled by her, but doesn't feel good about the relationship, I would say, or about her character, right? He's also looking down his nose at her the whole
2: time.
0: And Proust, the author's attitude toward this relationship is is still confusing and mysterious to me.
2: That's what's fascinating about him. There's really no one who writes about this experience the way that he does. But through all of the volumes of this in different forms, we find that obsessive interest in in obsession, obsess- obsessive compulsiveness, you know, erotic compulsiveness, the kind of sense of complete attachment to somebody and not being able to own your sense of self or if you find peace or calm until they're You've kind of incorporated them fully into your life. I mean, there's so much about jealousy and it all actually ties back to those opening pages where he's trying to get his mother to come kiss him goodnight and she won't, right? Those pages are the blueprint for the kind of concern with that back and forth in romantic relationships. Is this um, the the most Freudian
1: book ever written? I feel like (laughs) Freud must have been so grateful to Proust.
0: (laughs) I saw somewhere that they didn't know each other's
2: work. That's the craziest thing in the entire world to be there, like joined at the hip. We know that Proust didn't read Freud, but I don't know, you know, he may have known of Freud's work. I don't know.
0: So Proust himself, right, was something like Swan, I gather, even though there's another sort of real life inspiration for him. But he, too, was sort of this aesthete who moved in society who eventually decided that that was a waste of his time and he was seized by the desire to write this great book. And Plus
1: he was allergic to everything. So right. He, stay home. <laughs> he was an I asthmatic <laughs> and eventually
0: sealed himself up in his famously cork lined room and just wrote and wrote and wrote you know, for years until he died uh, relatively
1: young.
2: But he would go out occasionally in fur coats and be seen being, you know, fabulous. Exactly. So you
1: were saying, David, that he in some ways believes that our experiences aren't tied to reality, but his substitution for objective reality is memory and nostalgia, right? I mean, the objects that he infuses with meaning from his memory are incredibly vivid and have a kind of totemic, religious, theological presence to him, I think. That was like the thing that struck me the most about the novel. And I kind of love that, though it was pretty alien.
0: Yeah, and also I, I'm not sure how seriously I take that part huh. of the book, actually. You do so, believe
1: the lime blossoms are really the lime blossoms? Right. So
0: the, <laughs> it seems like there are two big subjects. I'm sure there are more. But the two big subjects that come to mind for him are desire and memory. But when I read this book, memory is actually seems much less important to him than you would expect it to be given the name of the novel In Search of Lost Time, given the way he opens it and this, you know, very famous section, probably the most famous thing that Proust wrote, is about, you know, dipping this madeleine in a certain kind of tea and tasting it and sort of gradually having his whole childhood open up to him because this was something that he used to eat when he was a child. And this is the most famous thing. If you haven't read Proust, you probably have heard about the Madeleine and et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I don't think it's that important.
1: Can I just read a little bit of the Madeleine? I should say that we're also reading a new translation by Lydia Davis, which I thought was fabulous, though I had nothing to compare it to.
0: Yeah, and, well, and I read a different translation in college, but I don't remember it. I did love this one, though.
1: So about the Madeleine, I have to read a little bit of length because there's nothing short and snappy about Proust. He is like the antidote to soundbite culture. But when nothing subsists of an old past, after the death of people, after the destruction of things alone, frailer but more enduring, more immaterial, more persistent, more faithful, smell and taste still remain for a long time, like souls, remembering, waiting, hoping upon the ruins of all the rest— bearing without giving way on their almost impalpable droplet the immense edifice of memory. And as soon as I had recognized the taste of the piece of Madeline dipped in lime blossom tea that my aunt used to give me, though I did not yet know and had to put off to much later, discovering why this memory made me so happy, immediately the old grey house on the street where her bedroom was came like a set stage to attach itself to the little wing opening onto the garden that had been built for my parents behind it. And I'm going to stop there, even though the sentence continues for many, many more lines.
0: Before we go any further, let's pause for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for Audiobook Club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. Just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. There are thousands of books to choose from, and for Audiobook Club listeners, we would like to recommend 10th of December, a widely praised new collection of stories by the great George Saunders. It's available on Audible, read by Saunders himself, and it's next month's selection for the Slate Audiobook Club. Your Audible membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give the service a try today and please use our URL so Audible knows you're an audiobook club listener. Audiblepodcast.com slash slate ABC. All right, back to Proust.
1: I mean, I guess you're right when you think about the overall structure of the novel, but I'm not sure how much I care because I felt like this was pretty profound and I was wanted to linger on it.
2: I don't think I agree, you guys. I okay. Say. Yes. I think maybe in this book, desire is perhaps more central to it. But first of all, there's two things. One is that desire and memory are totally linked for Proust, right? I mean, the reason he's concerned with both is connected. And memory is a way of talking about or making concrete his obsession with subjectivity. And the kind of enduring question of whether we are ourselves, right? Or whether we're constantly changing, which is something he deals with later when he's talking about grief, right? If we grieve somebody and then we grieve them less, is that person the same? Have we totally betrayed the the person we grieved? Did we ever really love, right? So these things are very connected for him. And I think that part of the concern with memory is concern with subjectivity, with consciousness. Like how do we know our own consciousness if things are forgotten? What is the experience of consciousness like? That's, I think, the real overarching subject of the book. And then, of course, desire is a profound arm of that because his experience of consciousness is primarily the experience of aesthetic desire, right? the desire, the fantasy of going to Venice, the fantasy of going to see the church at Baalbek, and then the experience of, you know, kind of erotic desire.
0: The point you're making about the obsession with subjectivity, that is what obsesses him. And that gets back to this question I have about Swan's relationship to Odette, because to my mind, so I think most novelists, they might, if they were going to describe or tell the story of this kind of romance, they would sort of imply reasons for why Swan, a character like him, would be attracted or would become obsessed with this woman that maybe had to do with his own childhood or with, you know, a certain attitude about women that he had or whatever it might be, an explanation, essentially. Context. Yeah, some kind of context in his own psychology and maybe in the culture or, or whatever. Maybe that's what Proust... Gives us, but it didn't seem that way to me. It seemed that this love is totally irrational and kind of random.
1: Well, and also, Proust is clearly also sitting in judgment of Odette. She does not come across as a character he has any compassion for. I was reminded of Madame Bovary, actually, in the judgment that was going on. And it was an aesthetic rather than moral judgment, right? Her biggest sins are that her face isn't shaped the way it should be and that she has just kind of low class taste, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, Proust is kind of a snob, right?
2: Yeah. Big time, I would say. Not (laughs) kind of. (laughs) I mean, it's very French, right? And one thing I think is interesting people don't talk more about is how this book in some ways is so of its moment and... Terms of how it views society and all the kind of obsession with class and fine distinctions, and some of that I found very alien, right? yeah Very hard, hard to hard for us to get into. Hard that, for right? us to fully get into. I mean, the more you read French literature, the more you can understand it, and the more time I spend in Paris, the more I understand it. But still, it's really alien. Some of that, David, it's such a good point that he's not that interested in explanations. He's interested in kind of immersion.
0: He seems to give certain things an almost objective value. There are works of art that he implies are genuinely great. And one of the key passages in this novel is when Swan hears this piece of music by a composer named uh, Ventoy, who, and my French pronunciation is terrible, I'll just apologize for it now, but he, uh, who we've already met, Because we know that he was this sort of sad figure whose daughter had a sadistic lesbian relationship that partly involved sort of, you know, holding his picture and spitting on it or something. It's this kind of gruesome scene. (laughs) It
1: was really the worst sex scene (laughs) I had read in a while.
0: (laughs) And, uh, I mean, it is kind of amazing for his time, Proust does see. There
1: were women sort of having sex. Yeah. It was in this very twisted way.
0: So we should maybe get back to that at some point. But Swan hears this music and... It's beautiful to him in a way that makes him want to be a better person, to put it in, you know, very simplistic terms. Yes.
2: The music is the real Madeleine of the book. Yes. Mm.
1: Because it takes you not just to memory, but to some other place in your
2: own identity and what you're reaching for in terms of yourself. Interestingly, we've hooked onto the Madeleine, but the music, the Ventoy phrase is like the true Madeleine, I think.
0: I'm going to read this brief passage where he's talking about the piece of music because I think it gets at this idea that there are – for all of this obsession with subjectivity, Proust seems to imply that there is a some kind of fundamental reality that he's trying to engage with. This is Proust describing Swan's thoughts. And he says, He knew that even the memory of the piano falsified still further the perspective in which he saw the elements of the music, that the field open to the musician is not a miserable scale of seven notes, but an immeasurable keyboard, still almost entirely unknown, on which, here and there only... "'Separated by shadows thick and unexplored, "'a few of the millions of keys of tenderness, "'of passion, of courage, of serenity which compose it, "'each as different from the others "'as one universe from another universe, "'have been found by a few great artists "'who do us the service by awakening in us "'something corresponding to the theme they have discovered, "'of showing us what richness, what variety, "'is hidden, unbeknownst to us, "'within that great, unpenetrated, And disheartening darkness of our soul, which we take for emptiness and nothingness. Mm. That seems deeply sincere, right? Sort of bursting out. There's so much irony in this book.
1: That's not ironic.
0: And yeah, then bursting through is this idea that art has this transformative kind of sacred value.
1: Can I ask you guys a question? And. I kept thinking of Gatsby as I was reading this book. I think it's the pathetic American in me, right? I mean, Fitzgerald (laughs) is like the more concrete, grasping version. Gatsby reminded me of Swan, and I felt like Swan actually has the taste and the worldliness and the appreciation of art. And so does Proust, that Gatsby just utterly lacks, and that's the central problem in Gatsby. But somehow it helped me to enter the more alien French early 20th century world with that comparison. That
0: That's interesting? so interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm now sort of teasing it out in my mind because when you think about it, okay. Daisy is not totally unlike Odette oh, in some ways. She's the opposite mm. in that she is, you know, from money, right? That's part of what um, Gatsby right. loves about her.
2: Her voice sounds like coins or whatever. Yeah. yeah.
0: But insofar as Gatsby's love for her also feels essentially irrational,
2: Right, and that there's something to be
1: spurned and scorned in this love relationship. You called it a romance. I don't actually think it's a romance. I think it's like a twisted, obsessive, compulsive, full of desire. um,
2: Ah, but the French would say, what is that if not romance?
1: (laughs) That's the thing. That's the part I don't get, Megan. You're so right.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and and that is,
0: I I think, one of the big questions for me with this book is to what extent, I mean, at one point, one of the great lines in this book, Proust says that Swan's love, as they say in surgery, his love was no longer operable. The, <laughs> you know, the idea being that he it couldn't be removed from him or he would die. And
2: But he, it was also a tumor. Yes, it's We're a tumor. He would die from it as well. But I mean, that is a perfect metaphor for what he's trying to talk about, right? Which is that lot of what he writes about is that, like, once you have an experience, it's embedded in you, and that even if it doesn't correspond to your idea of the ultimate love or you no longer love the person, the threat of its removal or the actuality of its removal does remove something from you, right? And he, Marcel, the narrator, is haunted by this, haunted, haunted, haunted by this, I think. And that is why that makes that such a perfect line, Right. It's not even that it's like because you still love this person so much. It's just that they have become a part of the habit of your days. And one of the central preoccupations of this book and the other volumes is habit and the idea, the ways that our you know, experience of the world and our consciousness gets formed by that and we can't undo it easily.
1: Right. And I think for Proust or at least for Marcel, the narrator, one doesn't want to undo it, that there's an enormous amount of meaning that comes from. The sameness of the day, right? And the routines of this village where, you know, there are many descriptions of his aunt in Combré in the beginning of the book in which she's watching all these people. Any kind of change in the variety of the village scene is of enormous fascination to her. And she is housebound as an invalid herself, either self-imposed or a truly medical condition. It's not clear. Maybe there's no answer. But she is watching everything and there's the sense that the habits and routines of this town life around her can infuse her life with all this meaning even though she never goes outdoors,
2: right? I know people who read this book and really just are kind of – because they can't understand Swan's either love or obsession or infatuation with Odette, really (laughs) – I just find this book totally baffling, right? And it is a very odd... I mean, when you when you think about the overarching, you know, all seven volumes, and I haven't gotten to the end, but I'm in five. When you think back, you're like, oh, that's such a funny beginning to this project because it makes total sense that he begins the project with this long segment about swans. But if you only read Swan's Way... You know, what you get is very different in some ways from from the other books. And I know people who can't get past this, like, I don't understand the Swan and Odette thing. Did you feel that way, Emily? Or were you still interested in the book for its observations for these kind of, as David so wonderfully put it, the Dickensian characters, the village life? Because that's a huge part of it, too, I think.
1: I was still interested. I didn't understand the relationship, but I feel like a lot of love is irrational. That, so that wasn't a problem to me that I didn't understand it. I felt like reading this book was like taking a warm bath. These... Lapping waves of these very sensuous descriptions and these really interesting philosophical ideas, but I was not driven to read the rest. Though now I feel guilty, Megan, because clearly no. there's <laughs> no. I mean, seriously, because obviously I'm it's obsessed a very with it. But...
2: <laughs> I mean, my obsession with Proust is my personal obsession with Proust. But it's like it's a life. It's a life's work in some ways. Yeah, really and, and those person. long
0: sentences. I mean, they are wonderful when you when you find your way into them. It's actually carrying you along. A warm bath, I think, is, a, is an apt description. But when you don't quite find your way, it, it just you can just feel so defeated because it just goes on and on and you've gotten lost.
2: I think we can acknowledge here that there are parts of this book and the other books that are just, you know, insanely brilliant, funny, wonderful, and other parts that are meandering and slow and kind of badly plotted out, not in the sense of plot, but just even intellectually plotted out, right? And this is a work of great variation it seems to me i mean
1: megan did he lack a good editor if he had had you (laughs) would it be better would it be one really brilliant volume or is but maybe
2: not maybe the meandering definitely the meandering needs to be there but i think some of the meandering could perhaps go but also you know certain characters die and then come back i mean definitely the book did lack a sort of ultimate Edit that it might have had. I think you're right. Like it's sort of the imperfections of this that are part of what make it modern, too, right? The, the the kind of impossible project of inclusion, and the fact that you know we are bored reading parts of Proust is part of what makes the project the project it is.
0: It's important to say that I think because it has such a reputation that I think people are inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt on everything, and to say that oh, you know, well, when you're bored. It's your fault. And maybe sometimes it is. Sometimes
2: it is. If you were more
1: worthy, you would not be bored. I decided it was okay that I was bored and that I was even going to skim in places until I got interested again. And I have to say that once I (laughs) gave myself that out, I
2: was very happier. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the ideal way to read Proust is to read about 10 pages a day, maybe 20. That's how I've been doing it because otherwise it's overwhelming. And then some days, of course, you get absorbed and you read more. But if you actually read Proust every day... It is like an ongoing warm bath. You have this experience of being caught up in his sensibility and seeing the world through his eyes so that when you come back to the book, you're still kind of in it. I find that if I take like a week off, it's really hard to get back in. But if I just read it every day, I'm not overwhelmed. I can really appreciate the kind of intricacy of each observation. And if I try to read more than that, I I sort of lose something.
0: When I read it back in college, I took two of the volumes with me to Washington, D.C., where I was living for the summer. And that's sort of what I did. I think I just read probably sizable chunks because I had no life then. But, you know, sizable chunks every day for a long time. <laughs> and that was more satisfying. Although I will say this time uh, through Swan's Way, there were days when I got absorbed and read large sections, mostly in the swan, the swan bit. I wanted to come back, uh, Megan, to your point. You, you mentioned we haven't talked about a couple of things. One of them is the narrator who, by the way, uh, the narrator at some point in the seven volumes is called Marcel. Like once or twice or something. He's never named in Swan's Way. But he talks in the beginning about how when he was a child, he needed his mother to come up and give him a kiss. And he, you know, once again, obsessed with that and completely agitated if he didn't get it.
1: But he also knew that asking her would be very troublesome, particularly to his father. And so he would be wrenched with agony over his desire for her, right?
0: Right. And Swan is involved in this because he's a family friend and he would come visit. And when he was there, she would stay downstairs and not come up to see him. So if you were going to do a sort of Freudian reading of this book, then that connection would be key. His sort of obsession with his mom is somehow... Uh, tied to Swan's obsession with Odette in some oblique way.
1: Well, and then Marcel, as a child, ends up obsessed with Odette and Swan's daughter. Too. Yes. So there's another.
0: It seems like he's saying something about, you know, sexuality and desire there. But I I confess it's, it's over my head if, if it is. I mean, I enjoyed each one of these sections on their own and found them quite astute in many ways, but don't really understand the connections between them. I wonder if either of you see something more there.
2: In all of them, it's almost less that it's like he's erotically obsessed with his mother and therefore he needs to replicate it with lovers, and more like because this was a dominant, paradigmatic experience of acute need that he did not have control over. That when he, the character, experiences that as an adult, those moments of this person is out of my sight and I don't know what's happening, it raises that back up in him right so i read it less as a specifically freudian you know desire my mother and more as a kind of this created a pal i mean it has some of that to be sure but that it more that it created a kind of palimpsest of how he experiences need and the anxiety that it induces in him and that something very similar happens between swan and odette right i mean it's like proust is a great writer about the kind of ugliness of love, right, where he shows the ways in which we kind of have moments of despising the lover or looking down at them or thinking, I am not really beholden to this person, but then we're completely subject to them also. Megan, do you think there's also something about
1: the acute experience as being valued because it is painful, that there's a sense in this book that Feeling something strongly is worth anything, right? Whether it's the piece of music or the Madeleine or Odette or her daughter or the mother, that that's the pinnacle of human experience. Even if you're made miserable and sort of slain by it, that you want to have intense absorption, you want the most vivid colors in memory. David looking at me like I'm crazy.
2: I think that's right. I mean, he really was obsessed with passion and suffering and famously you know, in many places in this talks about the kind of uselessness of friendship, right? I mean, of course it's really complicated because if you had the passionate response to the wrong piece of art, that would just be tacky. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, this is <laughs> right. If you have the worthless. correct aesthetic response, that, David's right, that there is like an objective reality, but if you have the correct aesthetic response to the correct piece of art, that is everything. Right, but it's fierce the distinction, Right. Well, he's an esthete. I mean, it really is. This is the portrait of an esthete as a young man.
0: Because he's an esthete, what is, I think, ultimately, to me, it seems what's ultimately valuable to him is art. And so that experience is sort of crucial and maybe inevitable, these obsessions that we have with things that are ultimately tacky, like Odette. I mean, that sounds cruel, but I think that's sort of how he puts it. But that ultimately what you need to do is renounce those things Mm -hmm. for art, which is great. I don't see him presenting Swan and Odette's kind of love as this great, you know, doomed romance that, you know, because Swan was so passionate about her— you know, no, that no, no. was a wonderful Absolutely. experience.
2: No,
1: you're right. You're right. No, That's no, 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 true. No. It's the experience of the aesthetic experiences,
2: right? The museum piece. He's obviously interested in indelible experiences, even though you're right. It's very complicated. It's so hard to talk about Proust. We should just, you know, have a coffee <laughs> and <Get up> now. <laughs> right. say how much we love him or whatever. But no, it's, uh, yeah, you're right, David. Because Swan and Odette are kind of a mirror to Marcel and Albertine later on in particular, I think. And so... It's hard to kind of talk about Swan and Odette. I think out of the context of what happens later between Marcel and Albertine. So
1: that's a key to looking back and reflecting on
2: this part, not to keeping like in this other book. But I (laughs) I think I think so. Like I think that when you get to that part, which is a central part of the whole kind of epic, you know, I think we're meant to think back to Swan and think about the parallels between Marcel's kind of obsession with Albertine who is similar to Odette in many ways, and and his desire to be free from the obsession, his inability to be free from it. One
1: thing I think is that part of the lasting, profound nature of this book is that it resists any kind of easy streamlined interpretation, partly, Megan, for the reasons that you are bringing up, that later aspects of the work as a whole change your interpretation earlier. But I think also, you know, I usually resist things if you can't, Find some way to quickly or at least sensibly summarize and analyze. But I feel like this is really worth all of its contradictions and complexity. And that's actually a lot of what it has to offer. It's kind of training us to realize that we're not going to make sense of this in some neat way.
0: Yeah. And even those long sentences, right? You mentioned before how they seem like an antidote to sort of our short attention span lives. And I don't know how they would have seemed in 1913. But they do feel that way now. I mean, you learn... still
1: pretty distinct, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, James was writing some kind of long sentences, but this... (laughs) <laughs> it's to shame, as far as I'm concerned.
2: <laughs> and that's even reading the Davis, you feel that, too. Yeah. yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Let me read one more of them, because this kind of gets to this whole question of how seriously or not Prue seems to take this relationship between Swan and Odette, and I thought this was very funny. But it is long. This is, once again, describing Swan's thoughts. When Odette ceased to be for him a creature always absent, longed for, imaginary, when the feeling he had for her was no longer the same mysterious disturbance caused in him by the phrase from the Sonata, but affection, gratitude, when normal relations were established between them that would put an end to his madness and his gloom. Then, no doubt, the actions of Odette's daily life would appear to him of little interest in themselves, as he had several times already suspected they were. For example, on the day he had read through its envelope the letter addressed to Forche which is this, whole other incident involving a man that he realizes she was involved with. But the idea there, again, that like her life isn't actually interesting. He becomes obsessed with it for these kind of totally irrational reasons. And then much of that section is taken up with him, kind of, what is she doing? Where is she going? Who is she with? And all of his suspicions are accurate. She's a courtesan. She's having relationships with all these men and women.
2: One thing I think you were getting at, David, and Emily, you also, but it's so true is that Proust is a real gossip, right? And there's a real wit in these books and a real humor and this obsession with what other people are doing. And the the passage about Odette makes me think that because he's kind of talking about the ordinariness of her life. But at the same time, one of the contradictions of this work that's so wonderful is that on on the one hand, Marcel is deeply preoccupied with particular works of art, you know, seeing the church at Baalbek as a kind of monument of a certain kind of style of architecture. But then at the same time, as he ages and even in this book, there's such a clever, insightful, penetrating sense of what other people are doing and their motivations, right? That so much of Proust is really about other people's motivations and actions in this way where I think that's part of why we read him too, because great novelists are really able to talk about people in this way. Like James, actually, where there's multiple levels of their personality and what they're doing and just kind of, you know, the hypocrisies of the cocktail party and all of that.
0: Right, yeah, and we haven't talked much about the various characters at the salon where he goes. And yeah, who have these kind of goofy tics and you know one of them is always phrasing his sentences as questions because he's not sure and you know trying I'm to speak yes i mean all ago. of these little things <laughs> that he gets which yeah are very funny and which you know proust obviously you know loved observing did so very keenly i also i read somewhere that there are 2000 characters in the course of the seven volume novel i'm not sure how well realized all 2000 of them are but just from this one volume i mean there are many many characters
2: Obviously, two of the crucial elements of this work in this volume and in the others are Judaism and homosexuality, Yes, Two sort of crucial latent elements that I think as 21st century readers, you can't help thinking about Proust and his relationship to the fact that he's half Jewish and the fact that he is gay. But Marcel is not in the book. Marcel is heterosexual.
0: I wanted to ask that because it's such an odd way of approaching those subjects. They're both very much present in the book. There are numerous gay characters, and there are numerous Jewish characters, and he makes... You know, the sexuality of the gay characters and the Judaism of the Jewish characters quite present and engages with them and, and sees these as interesting subjects. But the narrator is neither of those things, even though Proust himself was.
1: I mean, it seems like the classic displacement of the time, right? It's the way Am Forrester wrote. Well, I guess it's different because Maurice really is having this. But yeah, right? That you are separating yourself, but you're also making these part of the fabric of life. And particularly, I think he does that with the homosexuality in a way that felt very real to me
2: well because one of the obsessions is with other people having homo, especially women having lesbian relationships is one of the obsessions of this work which is fascinating and edmund white talks about it as a kind of like gender bending technique where it's like displacing his own safer maybe yeah
0: so what is the idea being that proust is kind of expressing his own kind of jealous obsession with men sleeping with other men Or Or
2: women, actually. Like apparently one of his lovers, he suspected sleeping with women. So one of his male lovers was sleeping with women. So there's an actual inversion. But I think setting aside the biographical in terms of just kind of literary terms, in terms of this novel, it's a very fascinating Oh, it's so interesting (laughs) because I kind of want to set the biography aside and think of it just in terms of this characters.
0: The thing is, I'm not sure that you can, right? I mean, you want to feel like ultimately it is so autobiographical. And even in the whole relationship between Swan and Odette, I did get to thinking, is this really a description of a man and a woman?
2: Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Or
0: is this a man and a man? Because for whatever cultural set of reasons, I do think that gay romance and straight romance. These are two different things. Every you know individual romance is different and all of that. But there are patterns and habits that we fall into, I think. And there are a set of kind of cultural expectations that a straight man might have for a woman that I think are different. And there's a way in which, as I was reading at this time, I was thinking, this is not really a man obsessing about a woman.
1: Oh, that's really mm. interesting. That actually helps me a lot because the moments of their relationship where I felt like I didn't understand her courtesan role. I was really struggling with her place in society. I've chalked up to my un Frenchness. But that actually I think could be a real insight into this as well.
0: Well and I hesitate to say it because, you know, maybe it is the Frenchness and maybe this is just my own limited perspective on what it means to be a straight man as, you know, here in the Early 21st century, you know, United States. But I really did feel that. And I I, I want
1: to did... read your paper about that. <laughs> go when you go back and write your dissertation about Proust. I want to read that chapter.
0: Emily, it sounds like you maybe enjoyed this book slightly less than I did or Megan did. I kind of want to reread the subsequent volumes now at some point. And Megan is apparently obsessed with Proust. I mean, I is... have
1: some stiff competition here. Is there but some yes? Yeah, is... <laughs>
0: Is there some way way to like
1: him? (laughs) Well, I'm really glad I read this book. I think it's a book that people feel like they're supposed to read and then it becomes like a weighty burden, not something that you actually want to pick up. It was in my mind as that book for a long time. I'm really glad I seized upon this opportunity to read it. It doesn't mean that I understood every or enjoyed every page, but I felt like I demystified it and that it completely lives up to its billing in terms of its originality, its complexity, and its insight into human nature.
0: That is a great endorsement. Is that pretty good? Yes. Is that all right, guys? Should I
1: do okay?
0: (laughs) Yeah. We can combine that with Megan's advice that you can read, you know, 10 pages at a time.
2: Can I add one piece to that, which is something Emily said earlier, which is to skip the parts that bore you. I mean, the English literature student in me, you know, is horrified by that. But I think as the reader who wants to read Proust, there's so much wonderful, very funny, really beautiful, moving stuff. And then there are these passages that are, you know, may bore you. And and don't let those be the impediment to continuing. Right. Excellent advice.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you guys both for discussing Swan's Way with me.
1: Thank you for leading us on. David, your taste was impeccable (laughs)
0: throughout.
2: Yes, it was so much fun talking with you guys. Thank you.
0: A program note. Next month's Audiobook Club selection will be 10th of December by George Saunders, a collection of stories that the New York Times called the best book you will read this year. You can read a fascinating interview between Saunders and his editor, Andy Ward, on the Slate Book Review. So please read or listen to the book and join us for our discussion on June 7th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com/books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com/abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com/slateabc. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes Store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and Emily Bazelon, I'm David Haglund.